think that we're going to end up in a, in a much better place on so many levels. And I, I think it's a failure of imagination sometimes to just not be able to get there in our heads. But it's also what's understandable, right? We're only human and we can only hold so much in our, in our heads. And, but that's, that's also this role of, you know, how can we get creative around solutions and how can we put all of those pieces together in alternate realities or worlds like that digital twin I was talking about. Are you ready to be the change you want to see in the world? Are you ready to make choices that have a positive impact on your daily life, your community, and the planet? You are in the right place. I'm Anne-Therese Gennari. And I'm Robin Shaw. And this is the Hate Change Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Clearloop helping you reclaim your carbon footprint while expanding access to clean energy across America. Did you know that offsetting your carbon footprint with clean energy investment can be a tool for social and environmental justice? Clearloop is changing the game when it comes to reclaiming your carbon footprint. They are building new solar projects in areas across America with the dirtiest grids, transforming the health and economic well-being of communities that have, until now, been left behind. Clearloop works with brands big and small who want to reclaim their carbon footprint, but for a limited time, they are offering offsets to individuals. I've offset a year's worth of my carbon footprint, and now you can too. Join me in helping Clearloop reach 1 million watts of clean energy at their first project in Jackson, Tennessee. Hey Change podcast listeners can go to clearloop.us through the month of June and get your name on a solar panel. Go to clearloop.us or check the show notes and let the sun shine in. Dr. Julie Pullen is a climate scientist using advanced computing technology and open source software to quantify climate risk in the financial sector and beyond. With a background in earth system prediction and complex systems, Dr. Julie brings a unique perspective as an oceanographer and former engineering professor holding leadership roles in academia, nonprofit, government, private sector, and scientific societies. Her work catalyzes sustainable investing in climate solutions and women-led ventures, and our conversation with Julie is nothing short of empowering. I got to know Dr. Julie through her work with Women Power Our Planet, an organization she co-founded that channels the financial power of women as an impactful climate solution. I am so inspired by Dr. Julie's quiet power. She has an amazing understanding of complex systems, and her passion to empower women is contagious. And Therese, what are some of the gems you're taking away from this conversation? Oh dear, there are so many. I feel like just talking to Julie is so refreshing because here's a woman in the climate field who's so knowledgeable and so smart, yet so eager to share whatever she knows with the world. She really understands the importance of connecting with everyone and sharing what we know and sharing what they know, the scientists, so that we can actually all be on board of co-creating a new kind of world. How about you? Yeah, I was really struck with her emphasis on community and doing this work together, as well as trusting the science and being open to learning and really understanding what's going on here so that we can make the necessary changes 
to create a better world for ourselves and for everyone. She's so open-hearted as well as absolutely brilliant. I'm really excited for everyone to get to know Dr. Julie through this conversation. So get ready for some deep, amazing learning with Dr. Julie Pullen. Let's dive in. Julie, welcome to Hey Change Podcast. We are so, so honored and so happy and excited to have you. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a while. We're having a little girl hang here on Zoom and it's just, we're just saying how nice it is to see everyone, although we haven't been able to physically be in person for a while, but it's just good to connect and remember that there are other people out there fighting this fight. So we're so excited to dive into this conversation and learn so much from you and all the experience that you have. And we wanted to start by just asking what prompted you to become a climate scientist and how long have you been working in this field? That's a great question. And, you know, I look back over my career and nothing seems like it would predict where I am right now, except for the fact that as a little girl, I would, um, one of my favorite pastimes was to float sticks in the rivulets of water that would form in our road. We had a dirt road in front of our house when I was a child. And I could, I would spend just hours just, just watching where the water would take the sticks and um, fluid flows and fluid dynamics just became this recurrent theme throughout my whole life. And I, um, in college, I was not, I was um, intimidated by math. And so I, um, I went toward the things that scared me and ended up being a math and physics major and um, spent some time um, at a think tank that was emerging at that time focused on complex systems called Santa Fe Institute. And um, I called them up. I had been reading their, their proceedings volumes when I was an undergrad. I called them up and said, I love what you're doing. How can I get involved? And they said, well, you're the first undergrad who's found us. How would you like to be our first undergraduate intern? And I said, yes, sign me up. So they, um, I spent a lot of time down there. They paired me with a evolutionary biologist named Stuart Kaufman. And he completely changed how I think about the world and science. And we were making all these connections between nonlinear dynamics of economic systems and biology and physical systems. And um, I ended up doing a master's in applied math on his recommendation just to get stronger in math and ultimately went into the fluid flows that have been like in my heart for a long time, which was to do a PhD in oceanography. Um, and I really started thinking more broadly about planetary flows and planetary dynamics, um, did a, P a postdoc in atmospheric sciences. So I was working with meteorologists and focus more on the prediction side, like how do we chart the path, the course that our planet is taking? At that point, it was on shorter timescales, um, more focused on like weather weather timescales. And then over time, I've moved into the longer timescales, climate dynamics, how can we use our Earth system models where we bring together all the components of the land surface, the ice, the oceans, the atmosphere, put them together in, our, in a, like a digital twin of the world and look at how these different paths will unfold. Um, but really the thing that precipitated that change into those longer time horizons um, was the impact of extreme weather 
on places that I love. And I spent, um, in 2018, I was a Fulbright visiting professor in the Philippines. So I was on sabbatical from my academic position. And um, I fell in love with that country and I was devastated by the climate impacts I was seeing. And I came back just committed to do even more around um, climate change and climate action. And so I left my professorship and joined a startup that is focused on articulating climate risk to businesses and other entities so that we show people like these are, this is the way that the world is unfolding at your, the scale of the, of the entities that you're interested in, whether it's a, you know, a neighborhood for a city or a building for a business, like unless you take you know, immediate action, this is the future that is unfolding for us on these different pathways or scenarios. Um, so it's very much focused in tech. It's um, using high-performance computing and bringing together all, a lot of my skill sets um, and focused on articulating um, a path uh, toward more uh, stronger, uh, more powerful climate action for a range of different um, organizations and entities. So that's my journey. <laughs> well, I feel like you probably left out a lot there too. But one thing I really want to ask you right away, because I think this is, it's a very interesting thing for me. Um, do you think it's easier for people to grasp the climate um, issue or to understand that the urgency by talking through tech? Like is technology in that sense helpful? Like why did you choose to go that route? I so I think that I've always been drawn to the potential of this idea of having um, like a parallel world that we're able to simulate potential outcomes. And, you know, increasingly I'm drawn to adding these other layers in around like the social systems and the economic systems. So, you know, we're, it's not just the, the planet in isolation and its own, you know, ecosystems and dynamics but it's really the interplay with the socioeconomic factors as well that will determine outcomes and how things play out. And I think it's that, for me, it's been that, well, these are inherently complex systems, but also those, those feedback loops, whether they're tipping points in, in the earth system itself, or they're tipping points in the socioeconomic systems, but these are like inherently intricately intertwined. And so being able to um, conceptualize that can be hard for our brains, but we can, we can mirror that in the digital realm. And I think that's, it's been the, uh, it's that, that appeal, which really almost has like a creative flavor to it. You know, it's not just, um, it, it's not, it's not linear. It's, it's highly nonlinear. And, and, and I was at the time I was at the Santa Fe Institute, that was the time that a lot of the tools that um, enable us to do artificial intelligence, machine learning, they were developed at that time in that place. So I was around um, the people and the ideas that became the genesis of all of these you know, data mining techniques that we're, we're using now across a range of different fields and that have really lifted up tech to to enable it to be what it is today that connects us all together. Um, and so I think that unfolding of the, that, that tool set and how it has the potential to really contribute even, even more in terms of helping us understand 
how our, our choices and societal actions will shape um, the planetary trajectory, I think is a really powerful um, tool, kit, tool to bring to bear on, on the dynamics. So I just want to make sure that I understand because this sounds so fascinating. And it's something that like I hadn't considered before, but it makes so much sense. So you talked about a digital twin. So you have a digital twin taking different like elements of our planet and existence, ecosystems, weather, socioeconomic situations. And you have like a digital twin of the earth that you can then see, like that helps us to predict what might happen. And does that also allow you to play out different scenarios? Like if this does, you know, if, if, if China and India do this, this is the outcome, like things like that. That's so that's the crucial piece. And that's what more and more groups are building in that, you know, that layer of how do these systems unfold and interact with each other. The way it shows up for me and my work is so I'm focused on the physical risk. But there's this whole other risk to economic systems um, focused on it's called transition risk. So as we move more rapidly toward decarbonization, there's going to be stranded assets, there's going to be stranded industries like oil and gas and others. Um, and those are going to have unfolding economic consequences. And so how do we, um, you know, create the, 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 the smarter, more resilient transitions that will, uh, will uplift everybody? So this also includes, of course, social justice and um, climate justice. And I think it's those, those more nuanced questions around how do you do all of that, 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 that choosing, having the option to see how different trajectories un, unfold, you, you know, just even around emissions pathways, that's typically how we think about trajectories is um, emissions pathways. And, and we just simulate the physical effects of different emissions pathways. But this whole other aspect of how do you bring in the transition risk, how do you bring in um, other aspects of socioeconomic risk is a really like emerging field. And to date, we've done a lot of treating them separately. And what I see in the future is like bringing them together. There's some colleagues of mine in Europe that have started to build this out even more strongly. And I'm really excited about collaborating more with, with groups who are seeing that, that way to use these tools. That's amazing. I mean, one, one question I would have is, do you see a lot of diversity with the people that you're working with? Like, is there, you know, is there a lot of women in the field? Do you see people of color who are in these positions and, you know, forecasting and, you know, relaying um, the information that you guys are, are coming up with? Is it predominantly white men? Like, what's the... Yeah, you know, so there. unfortunately, is very much um, male-dominated and white male-dominated. Um, I wish it would change faster than it, than it is. Um, the uh, the other organizations that I'm engaged with, I'm I'm on the leadership council of the American Meteorological Society, which is the largest society of weather, water, and climate scientists, and um, we have a very very um, diverse team of people who are um, working together to really um, you know chart chart the the course for this scientific society, but the community as well and. Um, one of the one of the interesting things we do is we certify broadcast meteorologists, and um, it's like a subdiscipline of of weather, water, and climate. And I've always been intrigued by their potential to really um, engage with the public. And 
you know, they have such a strong voice that's public facing. And one of the things our scientific society has been able to do is um, help them articulate the impact of, of climate on communities. And because they're, you know, they're in their own, they're embedded in their own local um, or regional area arena, and that's what they're thinking about and communicating about, they can do a particularly good job of communicating climate impacts. Um, and they also happen to be um, fairly diverse, that community of broadcast meteorologists. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, thinking and interacting more with these type of change agents who are on the communication forefront. Um, and also like you all, you know, who are really um, at that, the frontier of how we reach people and connect not just with their minds, but with their hearts. And I think that's what it's all about. There's so many things that are coming to me as you're talking. Um, first of all, I think that has been the missing piece, you know, connecting the scientists and their science to someone who then can communicate that so that people get it, not just, you know, on a, an intellectual level, but actually in their hearts. And I think something that came to me as you were talking was um, Charles Eisenstein's work. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you read the book, Climate, A New Story, but I read it last summer. And there was so many things in that book that shifted a lot in my mind. Uh, and he talks about, you know, how technically nature is this complex system that no matter how much we try to figure it out, we can understand it more and more, but we can never cook, like recreate nature. Like technically it's such a magical system almost. I think he actually uses the word magical or like we can't comprehend, yeah. you know, how this is all structured down to like the tiniest part. We can study it and gain more understanding, but at the end of the day, if you wipe out an ecosystem, there's no way you get that ecosystem back. Right. So I think, what he's trying to say as we continue forward on this climate journey, it's so important that we do include everyone and we do think about not just like what's most, you know, economically beneficial, how can we the fastest way um, lower the carbon emissions in the atmosphere. It's, it's such a complex system that our complicated minds can't mathematically come up with the right solution because we're going to miss out on some important piece. Right. So like we can't just say, let's just, throw up all these solar panels and then, you know, boom, that's, you know, that thing is solved. Well, what if we, in doing so, like wipe out a whole ecosystems in that area, then that's going to create another problem. Right. So I think what you're saying is so important because we have to moving forward, really integrate all parts of this issue. And we need to talk to people of indigenous wisdom who understand, you know, nature in a different way. We have to talk to communities. We have to, speaking a language that people understand and it's about job growth it's about economy it's about making sure everyone's included it's about making sure we don't wipe out ecosystems as we you know continue to evolve into a more sustainable world but it's a really complicated issue and i think something that i keep coming back to is you know what though like no matter how smart we get there's no way we can actually figure everything out so sometimes just like looking and trusting and being nature's best partner and not trying to always engineer the next thing yeah. um i'm not sure what i want to try to say here but like i just that was something i thought of as you were talking and i would love to hear your your thoughts on that too yeah charles eisenstein's work is very um powerful on this point and um it what you expressed really speaks to um one of the concepts in complex systems nonlinear dynamics is emergent properties that you know the whole is so much more than the sum of the parts and these these interactions that 
we can strive to represent in our um, you know, digital frameworks, but we'll always be missing some things. And um, you know, this is where, well, one, one of the things I'm spending more time thinking about is um, it, it, in some ways how, and, and I think Charles Eisenstein gets at this very strongly is um, in some ways still how we think about climate change is, is rather reductionistic. And there's other aspects of the life support system of our planet that are um, crucially being compromised right now. And we need to be thinking more about those at the same time that we address, you know, the, the immediate um, challenges associated with decarbonization. And so um, a lot of these, the life support role is, is centered in the ocean and I'm an oceanographer by training. I interact with a lot of oceanographers. So I'm spending a lot more time thinking about, you know, the ocean's um, capacity to support life um, on the planet um, and through the interaction uh, with with the atmosphere and the genesis of, of an oxygen um, creating producing planet. Um, so I've actually been spending time with my paleo, my paleo peers, the people who look back through deep time and think about the Earth's history and study it. There's a lot to be learned from those people. Yeah. What are, what are some of your most pressing concerns right now? Um, so I, I spend a lot of time on, well, there, you know, there's so many aspects to this. There's the science piece. And um, one of the things that is, is motivating me the most right now is to, to spend more time time ramping up our observations of the ocean. So I think we're missing things. And I was um, fortunate to be selected for a National Academy of Sciences panel on sustaining ocean observations. And we organized a workshop um, in the fall. And one of the, um, the things that emerged from that was just how disparate our observational networks are. So my background is as a physical oceanographer. So we measure things like temperature, salinity, the currents in the ocean, the wave structure of the ocean. And there's a whole nother set of oceanographers that are the um, biological oceanographers, the chemical oceanographers, they train rather separately from us. And they're monitoring things like ocean acidification, they're monitoring things like phytoplankton count. And it's unusual to have all of those quantities and metrics measured in the same platform. So we start getting closer with some of the satellite observations that are, have been um, unfolding and emerging and are, are come even more coming into the mix. But um, I'd like to, uh, but, our, but the ocean is, is vast and there's so many, many parts of the ocean system that are not being sufficiently measured either quantities um, or in terms of if you look at time scales and space scales, we're not resolving um, really crucial parts of what's happening in the ocean. And um, I think this is one, this is an interesting point that I, I, I think about a lot is how to, how to create these partnerships between government and private sector now that I'm in the private sector now, I'm with a climate risk analytics startup. And how do we create these you know, partnerships so the government is able to leverage the observations that the private sector is doing and um, bring them into the fold? Because it's not just a question of, oh, you know, 
the government going, the, let's say the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration going, NOAA going out and like doing a data buy from one of these companies, they actually have to make that, that data set up actionable. So that means connecting it with data sets that they already have. A lot of this work is happening. These um, data pools are happening in the cloud. So cloud computing. So we're you know connecting all of our different computing um, resources together. But that's, I mean, that's a complex system in and of itself. And so, um, and then that's not even thinking about the, the atmospheric um, measurements that which have been, you know, traditionally much more comprehensive than in in the ocean. And this goes back to, you know, the origins of numerical weather prediction around World War II, which was very um, tactical, you know, so th there's been a lot more investment in weather, understanding weather than there has been in the ocean to date. Sorry, someone who's not as um, a scientist and may not understand what all this means. Can you just give some sort of like, since we are diving right now into like the scary part, like what is something that's happening in the oceans right now because of climate change that we should be concerned about? Right. So um, we are experiencing heat waves in the ocean. And until rather recently, we never, we never had those. And they're in all basins now. And um, they're they're the equivalent of our, our land-based heat waves that we experience as people, but um, because the ocean is experiencing, it's less well measured. And even that term marine heat waves is, is new for our field. We didn't have a subfield devoted to marine heat waves until the last few years, but now we're seeing them everywhere. And that's um, a really big cause for concern, but we're not able to monitor and measure everywhere necessarily. So we're probably missing some of them too. Mm -hmm. But they have profound impacts for uh, ocean ecosystems and recovery times for ocean ecosystems um, really vary depending on how healthy the underlying system is before where the heat wave showed up. And those are, you know, crucially, they're often in coastal areas, but they're not, they're not necessarily co-located with the coral reefs, which we know are, are warming on their own because these are shallow regions. These are shallow areas of the planet. Um, but but other coastal areas are also experiencing um, heat waves. And for someone who doesn't understand that, you know, because it might be like, well, okay, it's really sad that oceans are dying or heating up, but that just means that I can go swimming in different parts of the world. But the connection there is like, as oceans warm up, it really directly affects our weather patterns. And that is why we're seeing more extreme storms and more heavy rainfall and like, exactly right so yeah. it supercharges our tropical cyclones that show up as hurricanes in the atlantic and typhoons we call them in the pacific so these warmer waters just in and of themselves um, are not just impacting ocean health but they're impacting exactly our weather patterns as well and the ability of um you know ultimately that's going to compromise fisheries and other other um, parts of the ecosystem that people rely on for their livelihood and their their food supply, which we're already seeing in various places, but it's just going to be more widespread. Yeah. Um, something that I thought of while you were talking about um, ha having more time to observe, it just felt like such a metaphor for what is happening right now, just on the personal level with the pandemic that people need in a way more time to observe what is really going on and taking in that information. It feels sort of like this metaphor for, you know, what's happening for the individuals also happening for our planet that 
we need this time to take in the information and then we need to learn how to communicate better with all of these different, you know, on the individual level, it's people, it could be your family and your community, but it sounds like in the scientific community that it's like, how do you have better communication between the nonprofits, you know, with the private sector, with the government, so that everybody has the same information and we can make better decisions together. And, you know, communication is not easy on the individual level. So I can only imagine um, how challenging that is in such a big scale. Um, you know, is there, is there hope for us? <laughs> well, so what you're speaking of is that, is um, that role of bridging across communities, which is something that I've been coming into way more recently um, in a much more intentional way. I mean, I've always been um, really keen on service to the community. You know, my, my graduate students, um, I continue to you know, support them and write letters for them and stay in touch with them, but also service to scientific societies, service to nonprofits. I'm on the board of a nonprofit called the Waterfront Alliance, where we advocate for climate resilient cities. Um, and we represent a thousand groups in the New York, New Jersey area that are, um, have a stake in the waterfront. I'm very excited about what this group is doing with um, its climate communications. And um, this bridging across those different entities, I think is gonna be even more um, crucial as um, we create these more like in, intentional connections. Um, a colleague and friend of mine uh, who you may know, Ayana Johnson, um, co-edited a book called All We Can Save. And it's one I highly recommend to everyone. It's, it's um, really spotlights women's voices in the climate crisis. And um, so it's contributions from a range of different women and, and a range of different fields and walks of life and um, life experiences. And one of the things that she always talks about is building community around climate solutions. Like that's where it's all about. And the thing is, is like, we can't just build community like as a, as a side hustle, you know? Like we have to actually make this central to our our being and identity and I'm I'm in the process of more like a much deeper shift into that and um, I'm really curious to see where it leads me so the other thing you touched on which is a large part of this is especially as we find ourselves in all the changes wrought by the pandemic is um, is processing the grief and loss. Um, and so, you know, I think we have a, a, a fair amount of societal reckoning on that front, but um, as those of us who are functioning in the climate space, uh, we also, you know, contend with that on practically a, a daily basis. And um, there's a lot there, you know, there's a lot there. And as climate scientists, I think we've been holding that inside ourselves for a long time and yeah. you know having our own ways of like rationalizing around it and writing our scientific papers and you know handling it as individuals and there's this stronger sense of stepping into the collective of how this processing is happening and I, and I see that and feel that with a lot of my colleagues, but particularly the women, you know, the people who are in the climate space right now um, are, 
are there because they're choosing it. And it's, it can be pretty heavy stuff. I, um, I love you for bringing this up. And I think it kind of ties together so many things that we already talked about. One is that, and I preach this a lot, especially lately, I think it's so important that as individuals, either if you're working in this field or not, that we allow ourselves to feel the pain. Uh, like you can't feel, you can't heal what you cannot feel. So like accepting the grieving and like understanding that it's terrifying that the earth is dying. It's terrifying that climate change is so, you know, present and close to us. And I think it's only by tapping into that and accepting that fear and that anger and that grief, that's the only way we can move forward. And I think trying to ignore or trying to just, you know, kind of cover it up or posting, like putting something on top of it to say like, oh, everything's fine, we'll work this out. And then I think there's this nudging feeling of like, well, everything isn't fine and we know it's urgent and like, what can I do? Um, so I think that's the first step and like trying to heal yourself by accepting that's okay. And then what you mentioned many times, community, like we're not alone in this. Actually, we are all in this together. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a climate scientist like Julie to care. You don't have to be working for the government or in an organization to help solve this crisis. Like we can, there's so much work that needs to happen. And I think starting by just reaching out to someone in your already existing community. I read a book called um, what we think about when we try not to think about global warming. And it's all about the psychology behind why we're not acting more than we are. And one thing that the book talked about was the fact that we feel like this is barrier to action and like, okay, well, if I want to act on climate change or like become this climate hero or whatever, I need to then go outside of my already existing life and create something separate. And we don't feel like we have the time or the capacity or the energy, but where we have the biggest impact is it's actually in already existing communities. So, you know, like where you can make, where you can have the biggest influence are on the people who know you that respect right. you and trust you. So like, you don't have to start working for an organization. You can actually start really pushing for change by communicating to your already, already existing communities and friends. And it can be as simple as, Hey, let's meet up or maybe not right now, but you know, individually do this um, separately, but at the same time, like every Thursday we go and we do this like maybe we pick up trash or maybe we sign a petition to save this this lake it can be some something super simple and I think simplifying climate action is key because that's when you feel like you're attached to it and that comes back to what we talked about in the beginning where like it's not just about the science and the numbers it's about the fact that we need to preserve land we need to love things that we still have all we have to save like right that's what that title is about there's so much still to save and we have to remember that. And by doing the work, by connecting with other people, by showing up like actively being an optimist in action, which is what this podcast is about. That's when you start feeling better about it too, because you feel empowered and you are doing yes. things in community with others. So yeah, heavy, but there's way to be empowered. That's what I'm trying to say with all this. Well, and, and, and people could just start by talking about it, like bringing it into your life, like making it alive for you in all those ways that you you just suggested like that's that's how you start and then you just like follow your heart like where where do you want to spend your energies what are you drawn to well, who are the who are the people that are making you feel powerful that are making you feel engaged that that you want to be in relationship with and community with and, you know, tuning into that information and, you know, anchoring around that kind of illumination is a, is a really strong force. Yeah, it was such a major, um, like, light bulb for me when I realized that 
I didn't have to, like you were just saying, Anne, like you don't have to have it be these separate things. Um, you know, for me, it was a huge realization that I could be in the industry that I was in and make changes within that industry. So whatever industry you're in as well, I mean, having conversations with family and friends and your community and, and also the industries that we're in are the ones that are going to have to make major changes. So to know that, you know, whatever your job may be in your, in your day-to-day life, that there's also opportunity to influence the people that you work with and the business and then the industry as well. And hopefully, you know, we can be part of that bridging the different, <laughs> the different elements that, you know, need to be communicating with each other. It's crucial, super vital right now. And it takes everybody, really. I mean, really, it's about all of us. Yeah. Julie is wearing a beautiful shirt saying climate feminist. I want one, first of all. (laughs) Yeah, so this is a collaboration um, from the nonprofit All We Can Save. So there's a book, but also the um, Ayana and Catherine Wilkinson set up a nonprofit. And it's a collaboration with Lingo Franca. So that's the sweater brand. So you can look for Lingo Franca and look for Climate Feminist and find them there. And um, a portion of the profits go to All We Can Save. Okay, we're going to link that everyone so people can find this link. Um, But on the topic too about climate feminists, you started something called Women Power Our Planet. And that's technically why how we know you. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization and what you're out to do? Yes. So um, one of your colleagues, Don Gallagher, a model activist, and I came across each other in climate action circles. And um, we came together around ways to help women feel more connected with climate action. And we were both in our own individual journeys around financial empowerment. Um, And so we created an initiative called Women Power Planet to help women understand that um, their financial agency is a really powerful lever in uh, for climate action and as a climate solution. So being able to engage in sustainable finance, um, which includes sustainable banking and sustainable investing. So making choices about where you put your money and how your money is being deployed. So, um, you know, the one of the, the origin areas of this is to um, deploy your money so that it's not propping up the fossil fuel industry. But then there's this whole other aspect to it, which is what do you channel the money toward? And so we spend a lot of time um, understanding and helping communicate around that landscape of investment opportunities to invest for a sustainable planet, to invest for a life-supporting planet um, for our children. And um, what we found is that there's so many women who are really become much more connected to their finances when they understand that their money can be used to create this kind of um, change and plan and, and as a action for planetary stewardship. And, but it's also deeply personal because there's a lot of women that have a range of different emotions around money, including um, how they've experienced it as a, as a power dynamic and maybe even shame associated with money. And so it's really this interesting, like personal and once those personal shifts happen, often there, there's much more energy directed toward what that can unlock for women. And the statistics are phenomenal that the majority of wealth will be in women's hands and in a very short period of time. So women really are 
this this lever to divert the resources to a sustainable to create a sustainable planet. That's amazing. I've been doing a lot of work myself on my relationship to money. And one of the things I found so helpful is the sort of realization that money is just another form of energy, you know, currency, it's I've always seen it as something that's like very material and outside of myself and realizing that it's just numbers that we've made up and that, you know, we're, we're, um, Anna and I have been talking about this. It's like, we are actually channels for energy to move through and money is just another channel. And so when you think of yourself as this conduit, it's like, okay, you know, we need to continue to increase our circulation of energy. And that means for me personally, at least it, it means having a much more limitless mindset around money, that it's not this concrete thing that's outside there that I have to, you know, take from someone else and that someone else might be lacking when I take it from them. If I charge, you know, what I think I should charge for whatever it is, it's like money is actually an energetic force that we have the power to put towards things that are meaningful in our world and create, create meaningful change. And that you know, I, as an individual, you know, I'm deserving of those things. So it's been a real, um, it's been a real shift for me. I loved when we did the video for the women power our planet um, together, uh, I guess, at this point, I didn't even know if it was over a year ago, when we were, got together in New York, and we were um, standing outside of Chase Bank, and we're, you know, shooting a video and raising awareness. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit specifically? Yeah, so um so that was one of our first direct actions. And it was before um, so much has unfolded. Um, Bill McKibben's article came out after that in the New Yorker and Stop the Money Pipeline, which Women Power Planet is really proud to be part of that coalition of um, partners. And um, that was just us being creative and you showed up and you were like this magnificent light. And there was so much exuberance in what we did. And um we just went into the bank and with love and light, we extracted our money from Chase, which is the, um, the biggest um, bank supporting the fossil fuel industry. And we were intentional and kind in how we explained to them why we were taking out our money, um, but also a little sassy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that part. You guys showed up in pink t-shirts and you walked into Chase <laughs> saying we're breaking up with you because you are funding money into fossil fuel. we do not like this and it was just it's, I love this video it's so sassy and powerful and it's like you know what it is as simple as that I am a woman I have money I'm not going to put that in a bank that's fueling fossil fuels and that's just what it is and it was yeah. so nice too because the people who worked in the bank were actually pretty supportive I found like it's not like you know we didn't we weren't met with opposition you know the people who were bank tellers and stuff it's like they they really have no idea. Like many of us don't have really have not considered like, okay, so you put your money in a bank. What does the bank do with that money? You know? So, you know, I remember just like when, you know, overhearing you guys like explain it to the tellers of like, did you know that, you know, Chase is like the number one supporter of fossil fuels out of, you know, all the major banks. And it's like, they were like, oh, I, you know, they didn't know. So, you know, any opportunity to raise awareness is, is so powerful. And I, I loved being part of that with you. (laughs) Yeah, it was it was so much fun. I just I love the exuberance of it too, and just how it it catalyzed other actions as well. And to your point earlier about the well, the system, right? We're embedded in a system, and um, it's really important to do our part to step outside of the transactional nature of things. I think 
um, an overtly focus on money tends to put us in a more transactional mindset. And um, it really takes away from seeing a, a wholer, fuller perspective of what what relationships can be or are meant to be. And um, I, I, I think that's just a really important concept that we just keep close to us. Yeah. You know, there's also a movement. Um, it's really interesting among foundations to deploy their capital now. Like, you know, there's this whole thing about, oh, you know, holding on foundations are going to be giving out money for tens of years and they're building things. But there's there's actually this really interesting movement to just just give the money away now. Just get it out there now, because now is such a critical moment for the planet. Definitely. Now is when it's needed. And that's that whole idea of circulation. It's like when, yes. you, when you when you move, you know, it's like a body with exercise. When you, you move things around, you're creating movement and you can receive more in a way when you give more. And so it's that's like, the flow. That, yeah, mm-hmm. very much in flow. So what would you say to someone who's not a climate scientist, um, anyone, just regular person listening, what would you say are the best three things to do right now to be a steward of the earth and to have a positive impact on our climate and the planet? Great question. So I would say the three critical things are to, to talk about climate change. Don't make it be something that is just some sort of harrowing future that you don't understand. Um, make it something that's that's part of your life. And, and because there's there's real benefits to bringing it close to you. So talk about it, friends, family, coworkers. Um, the second piece I think is really important is, is to, to do that, that inner deeper work around money and how, how you're deploying your capital on all levels, whether you just have a bank account, whether you also have a 401k, whether you, um, you do other types of investing. Like how can you make that the best use of money for the planet? And um, the third one is is don't neglect the um, the power of supporting political candidates who have policies that or advocates for policies around um, climate and social justice, and that this transition is coming and um, we as people have a have a say in voting for the people that have have our backs that are invested in 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 the people and i think that's um really really critical i'm just making so many notes as you're talking and and it's um it's really powerful i think that sometimes for me personally i get caught up on like the little things of like you know like make sure to use your bamboo toothbrush you know it's like in all those I know that like lots of little steps can lead to bigger changes. And it's not to say that making those personal changes doesn't have a big effect, but it's really nice to, again, pause and step back and observe and start to have those conversations more and more in your life. And um, yeah, I just, I so appreciate what you're, the advice that you're giving for us and for the audience. And we can do it all, the small and the big things, you know, whatever we have room for in our lives and we welcome into our lives because even those small things are also, 
you know, daily habitual reminders of why we're doing this. And I think that's really important is how we structure and set up our lives around these like anchor points of, okay, I'm doing this because the why, like I'm really super big on the why, like, why are we doing this? And if you don't have a strong why or a collection of whys that you can keep coming back to, then it's less likely to stick. Yeah. And I think too, it's about an attitude, you know, because like, it doesn't, you don't have to think about like, oh, now I need to buy, if you go to the store and buy a toothbrush and you have to choose from one or the other, like, it's just a choice, no matter which one you take. So you make new habits. And now this is the one I want to buy instead. And I think for me, it's almost harder to buy plastic items because using plastic to me is like heart-wrenching, you know, like it's hard. So every time I have to use plastic for whatever reason, it feels not great. Right. So I think addressing, you know, climate action and all these different like sustainable swaps or whatever you want to call them. Like, yes, the first time you do it, it is an actionable choice to do something different, but then that becomes a new habit. And then that's just like your part of life. Right. So I think for me, it's helpful because my, my husband asked me just a while back, he's like, isn't it tiring to always wanting to find the best solution? I'm like, no, like I couldn't live my life in any other way, you know, like not doing that is what really like, you know, drains me. So I think it does help to think about it that way, like climate action and climate. Yeah, climate action is fun. You know, it's empowering. It's you're choosing to be part of the solution instead of fueling the problem. So, yeah, before we dive into the rapid fire session, just simply, can we be optimistic about the future? Absolutely. Um, there is so much to be optimistic about. Um, I think there's a lot that we can do in re-envisioning and reimagining our cities. Um, New York is a great example because um, the state has led the way in terms of um, opening up to renewable energy. And so the offshore uh, wind farms that are being developed now that have been unleashed for um, the city um, is really extraordinary. It's a story that hasn't been told yet. And this nonprofit Waterfront Alliance, we're like helping shape that story because it's so important. But what it also does is it revitalizes our ports because a lot of the assembly of these, um, the, of the renewable energy, the wind, wind power, the, um, the, the propellers and all of the, the equipment is taking place um, in our ports. And so that's going to create more jobs for people. These are green jobs. So there's this whole, all of this linked activity around the transition that are gonna be really beneficial to cities. And then you, you add into that the climate resilience piece. So making our cities more climate resilient. resilient. And I think that we're gonna end up in a, in a much better place on so many levels. And I, I think it's a failure of imagination sometimes to just not be able to get there in our heads. Um, but it's also what's understandable, right? We're only human and we can only hold so much in our, in our heads. And, um, but that's, that's also this role of, you know, how can we get creative around solutions and how can we put all of those pieces together in alternate realities or worlds like that digital twin I was talking about. So all of that comes into play. I and mean, these are just ways to uh, conceptualize a future that whose contours are less well known to us. But many of us, as we think about it, are really drawn to it. But, you know, we're really like, wow, this could be really good. 
And that's a really important thought to set of thoughts to keep close. My favorite quote is keep some room in your heart for the unimaginable. I love that. I was going to say it if you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I read it the first time when I was like in my early twenties and I had that like twilight zone moment. I'm like, like something just clicked in my head and I'm like, whoa, that's so empowering to think about. Cause like, I have no idea what tomorrow holds or like what, where I'll be five years from now or 10 years from now. And then I started applying that mindset to my climate work. And I'm like, we have no idea what the future is going to look like. It might be the most beautiful world we've ever seen. So that is, I, that reminder to me is like what keeps fueling my optimism. So I'm so happy you brought that up. Yeah, it reminds me of like, sometimes I get so caught up in the day-to-day physical side of the world. And yet we are energetic beings and being alive is so unlikely and magical that of course we should give ourselves permission to think beyond what is happening right now in our current reality. Give ourselves permission to think, you know, wonderful to really live into the dream of, you know, what a, a more harmonious world can look like. So I'm glad that you <laughs> that you feel the same way, Julie, that <laughs> there there is hope and that there really is um, there really is opportunity for positivity. Well, that leads us into our uh, our first rapid fire question really speaks to this. So are you ready for some uh, 10, ra- <laughs> 10 rapid it feels, fire? It feels like a game show. So I may not have answers to all, but I'm going to do my <laughs> Perfect. Well, at the end, you just win more of our love. So there's no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So number one, fill in the blank. I believe in a positive future because. Because of climate solutions and community. Yes. Awesome. Number two, morning bird or night owl? Depends on the day. (laughs) I'll do it all. I do it all. (laughs) Same. Awesome. Okay. Number three, favorite quote. Okay. That has to be the one that you just said, Andre. Will you say it again? Keep some room in your heart for the unimaginable. Love that. Beautiful. Number four, a book you read that really stuck with you. All We Can Save. Highly recommend it. Women's Voices in the Climate Crisis. I'm going to go out and get that as soon as we're done here. <laughs> and they're doing book clubs. You can sign up for a book club or start your own. Oh, amazing. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, a mantra or phrase that you repeat to yourself. Embrace love. Mm. If you could instill one change in the world right now, what would that be? More compassion. What is something you're letting go of? Transactional relationships. (laughs) Purely transactional relationships, I should say. (laughs) Then what is something you're inviting more of? Deeper connections. Hmm. What is the message that you want people to hear? We have the solutions. Powerful. Ooh, I just let that sink in a little. Okay, and then our final rapid fire question. What does being an optimist in action mean to you? So being an optimist in action means to me embracing the world that we're in now in all its messiness and chaos and 
using that energy and that dynamism to fuel a better future. Julie, you're so amazing. I feel empowered, educated, uplifted, hopeful, optimistic. I don't know. I just feel great right now. So thank you so, so much for being here. I have been so looking forward to connecting with you all. And this has has really been tremendous. So thank you for the opportunity to be in community with you all. I look forward to more opportunities um, in person. Yes, definitely. Thank you for sharing your, your wisdom and your heart with us. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Hey Change podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please share this episode with friends, family, or someone in your network. Also, don't forget to give it five stars in the app so that we can reach more listeners just like you. We love hearing from our listeners, so please tag us when you share this episode on social media. We'd love to connect with you and learn about what you are doing too. You can find where to reach us in the show notes. Before you go, we'd like to invite you to pause and to think about this one final question. What does being an optimist in action mean to you?